This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Editor, and I'm joined by our editor, Fraser Nelson, and our political editor, James Forsyth. So a lot of news at home and abroad. James, let's start at home. Roman Abronovich has been officially sanctioned um, billionaire many times over and owner of Chelsea Football Club. What does this mean for him, for Chelsea, and what does this signal to other Russian oligarchs? I think this is symbolically important because Roman Abramovich buying Chelsea was kind of summed up the way in which Russian money was flowing into London and changing British life. Like a small club in London suddenly became the dominant force in English football for a few years. And that was basically because of his money. I think it also sums up one of the questions about these people, which is there's always been a debate whether Abramovich bought Chelsea almost as a kind of insurance policy, you know, that you know that, that lots of oligarchs fell out of Putin and came to uncomfortable ends. You know, that, that some people said, oh, look, Abramovich bought this as an insurance against that. I think what this shows, and the UK decision to sanction him, is how close Abramovich remains to Putin. And I think it is also, you know, the UK government beginning to try and play catch-up in terms of sanctioning individual oligarchs, which has been far less effective than uh, the US and the EU on that. Despite, I think, on the structural sanctions, for example, things like cutting Russian banks off from SWIFT, the UK having been out front. Fraser, on that point, a lot of people have been very critical of the UK government for not going hard enough on individuals and when it comes to sanctions. Do you think Abramovich um, signals that we're going to see a change on that, or is this a one-off case? No, this does look like a change. I mean, there are seven oligarchs sanctioned today, and I was really struck by the language used in the Treasury indictment document. It referred to Abramovich as a pro-Kremlin oligarch. Now, that's quite direct language. The same, by the way, with Oleg Deripaska, you know, whose yacht uh, George Osborne and Peter Mandelson were famously on, and five others. So I do think that the British government is trying to push back on this London grad accusation. I have to say that part of me is a little bit uncomfortable with this because I think there is a really big difference, which is crucial to maintain at this time, between Russian citizens and people caught up in Putin's regime. Now, I don't doubt, by the way, that Abramovich is very close to Putin, but I do feel for um, anybody with a Russian-sounding surname in this country right now. Uh, I've got a few friends of mine who who are Russian and are saying that it it is different to go out there. It's assumed that you're basically in league, that you're part of this malign force corrupting British public life. I mean, sure, we we did, as, as a country, give too much latitude to people at a time where we thought that engaging with Putin would bring him into our, our way of life. This was part of a deliberate strategy to invite these people to come and invest in Britain, to strengthen our society, etc., in the belief that we'd have semi-normal or, or more normal relationships with Russia. Now that things have gone the other way, the history is being rewritten very quickly to think, OK, this was all out-and-out greed from the offset. It wasn't. It was a misguided attempt to bring Russia into our orbit. But you, you, you do get to the stage now where, you know, there are some supermarkets um, banning Russian vodka and things. And that, you know, it, it brings back memories of what happened to the, you know, the Italians in this country during the war and what happened to the Japanese in America during that conflict. So I, I do think that as we go after the oligarchs, 
we ought to be very careful of the language we use. This is not a problem of Russians in Britain. This is a problem of, of Kremlin stooges in Britain. Just to jump in there quickly, if it's all right, by UK. I think there, I think one thing that has caused extra confusion is that you know Putin is a, a former KGB man. And one of his popular tactics was people would arrive in this country with lots of money and they would say to people, look, you know, I've fallen out with the regime, I'm here because I have to get out. And I'm sure there were cases in which that was true. There were also cases in which there was a deliberate fiction that was perpetrated by this person at kind of Putin's request until they got their tentacles into uh, London society. And when people realised who they really were, it, it was too late. I mean, that, that is a problem. I also think that, you know, as, as Fraser said, you know, some of this stuff, like we're not going to play Tchaikovsky and all this stuff, is just completely ridiculous. Because, I mean, the whole argument should be that one of the things that Putin is doing is taking a country that has a, that has contributed a huge amount to European civilization and turning it into a land of barbarism. And that is what we should. One of the things that we should be so angry about him, you know, not just what he is doing to Ukraine, but what he has done to Russia. I'd highly recommend to listeners Owen Matthews' piece in the Spectator magazine this week, where he talks about some of the attacks that are already starting on people with Russian accents and Russian surnames um, that he's heard about across Europe. And he also talks about some of the young Russians who are risking jail time and even being captured because they're going out to protest. It's, it's really interesting and harrowing stuff. If we look abroad, Fraser, Ukrainian and Russian ministers were meeting in Turkey to try to negotiate a ceasefire, but the Ukrainian foreign minister has said that that has failed. There were optimistic noises over the past few days, um, perhaps naively so, that this could actually lead to something. Are you surprised that they failed? Not at this stage, no, but I did note there's been some really interesting reports in Israel, where Israel's close to both Ukraine and Russia, that there's actually more common ground than you might think. Like, if you listen to some of the Russian language, there are some instances where they're, they're basically saying that, um, you know, they're dropping their idea for regime change or demilitarization, which is a code for regime change, and they're talking about, you know, maybe Ukraine would just drop its demand to enter NATO. That's in the Ukrainian constitution. And we hear from some of the Ukrainians suggesting, well, maybe we could rewrite the constitution to drop that demand. Now, I've got, you know, in in a world of otherwise unremittingly bad news, I guess you're ten, you tend to jump on to any glimmer of hope or light which you see. So, I, I of course, I loved hearing these reports from Israel. I loved thinking that to myself that perhaps um, Putin, we all know Putin misjudged the reaction to this, everybody misjudged the reaction, but that misjudgment doesn't mean to say that he's going to now um, back off if anything can make him double down. That's why British authorities are worried that they might use chemical weapons now, because he is, uh, this, this might be how he responds to his epic miscalculation. But I would, you know, it's funny, I've been allowing myself to dream what happens if you wake up and, you know, you find that they actually have reached some kind of peace. But the problem is, though, that even if they were to agree terms, it would not go back to the status quo ante. Even, I don't know what you think, James, but let's say for the sake of argument that they agreed terms, Putin withdrew. We would still be thinking of ways of withdrawing our alliance on Russian gas. Europe would still be phasing down. It's, you know, the economic pain that Russia is feeling, it would continue to feel. Because from now on, people are going to treat Russia as a potential aggressor that could basically invade a neighbour at any time. And as a result, you don't want to be too dependent on them. So as a result, that kind of the economic entanglement, which we deliberately forged during the, the 90s and early 2000s. I, I bumped into David Cameron last night, and he was, of course, Prime Minister at a time where, where we were deliberately trying to, to, to get Russia in, into our economic orbit. 
all of that is going to be unwound now, and I can never see it not being unwound for as long as Putin stays in the Kremlin. And James, a lot of people keep talking about Russian miscalculation, and there's certainly a point to that. But on, on Fraser's point there, the West has also miscalculated by allowing itself to become so dependent on Russia and its supplies. Um, and as Fraser says, it is, is hard to imagine a world now that it's so clear that Putin is very far away from being a rational actor, uh, that it would allow itself to become so dependent again. Yeah, I, I think Fraser is right about the fact that whatever happens, even if you know that there is some ceasefire or something like that, I don't think Europe is going to stop trying to get itself off Russian oil and gas in terms of its reliance. I think the fact that Germans have woken up to the dangers. I also don't think you're going to see a, a Europe moving away from spending massively more on defence. You had Sweden today. Sweden of all countries announcing it's going to spend 2% on defence. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think any of this is going to stop. I think in terms of on Fraser's basis, on the reasons to be hopeful, there is something that both sides potentially have in terms of, of a ceasefire, in terms of leverage. The Russians would feel that they occupy a certain amount of territory in Ukraine, so a kind of standstill ceasefire would leave them in control of a certain amount of territory. And the Ukrainians, on their part, would know that you have Western sanctions, which mean that Russia actually needs to get to some kind of negotiated settlement to get them lifted. The thing I would say on a peace deal is I think the crucial thing is that the West should be guided by what the Ukrainian government wants. There should not be another Yalta-style deal where the West basically tells the Ukrainians, right, we've worked out some terms with the Russians and therefore we've got to, we've got to leave it be. I mean, you, know, you also have to accept that kind of le- the, you have to be realistic about the sheer levels of Russian dishonesty. Sergei Lavrov today declared the Russian foreign minister at these talks at the press conference afterwards said, Russia has not invaded Ukraine, which, I mean, it, it, at some point we just, ha- you know. And so I think the, 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 the Ukrainian argument, which is, if you are going to leave Ukraine demilitarized, are you really going to believe a Russian assurance on a piece of paper that they're not going to march straight back in when they've, when they've rebuilt their stock? That Ukrainian concern is, I think, very valid and very real. I think the Ukrainians are right that they need security guarantees from a whole series of powers if they are going to accept this, right? Remember, you know, Ukraine gave up nuclear weapons, and that is brutally why it's in the situation it's in today. We've been talking a lot about cultural boycotts. Um, one of those many examples is that Russia has been kicked out of Eurovision. Fraser, today we got the UK's Eurovision entry update. Take us through it. Well, this is. Uh, I do think that Eurovision is an interesting prism with which to see European politics. I think some of the trends in European politics can actually be anticipated by looking at the voting trends. And I think certainly when we look at the, the current conflict, I think you, you, when Ukraine won, that kind of presaged its orange revolution. And, and right now, Russia's been kicked out this year. It usually gets booed in Eurovision, but um, it's been kicked out completely. Now, Britain has announced its um, contender, Sam Ryder, he's a TikTok star, Britain usually tends to fare badly here because we don't do any contest for our conflict. We, it just gets announced by some Politburo or a committee. Now, compare that to Sweden, which is going through, I don't know how many episodes to find its winner. The Swedish top 10 right now is absolutely full of um, Swedish Eurovision entries. You know, right now, the favourite is Ukraine. Not a brilliant song, but it's striking how often people want to express. I mean, Eurovision is a, a collision 
of music and politics and culture. And it wouldn't surprise me this year if um, Arvis Eurovision is more political. I mean, we have had Eurovision's a time of conflicts. I mean, let's remember that in 1984, Nicole won for Germany with a little piece um, in the middle of a Cold War. I mean, um, Israel gave Germany 12 points, a very poignant moment. We had, when Northern Ireland was up in flames, we had Dana um, singing all kinds of everything. A girl from the bog side won Eurovision. When she did, it was the first time a flight had gone back from Dublin to Belfast. I mean, these can be moments in conflict resolution. So, you know, I I am a great believer in Europe kind of cohesion as a cultural whole. And in in good times and in bad times, we can see a lot of these socio-cultural economic links um, played out through the medium of the world's most watched cultural event. James and Fraser, thanks for joining me. 